Hello, I'm Dave, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. This is the second of three recordings from our Tragic History live event that took place at the Hackney Attic on Friday the 16th of May. Stand Up Tragedy are taking the tragedy up to the Edinburgh Festival again this year as part of the Free Fringe, but we need your help. We've launched an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign that you can find over at bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe. We've got some amazing perks that you can get in exchange for funding the tragedy, and no donation is too small to be valuable to us. Another way to support us is by spreading the word of what we're doing to your social networks and encouraging your friends to get involved. You can also support our Edinburgh journey by coming to see our London shows. The next one is on Thursday the 12th of June at the Dog Star in Brixton, where our theme will be Greek tragedy, and our lineup includes a set from the comedian Andy Zaltzman. You can buy tickets in advance for £5 via our Indiegogo campaign. So, come cry with me. Come cry, come cry away. And here's... Act two of Tragic History. Hello everybody! Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Uh, What we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. It's as as simple as it sounds. Uh, And tonight's theme is Tragic History. Now, it's, it's going to be a roller coaster of a night, which is hopefully something that you'll all enjoy. I like, I like a good roller coaster. So you should expect comedy, you should expect uh, sad things as well, though. So you should expect some laughs. And what we say is we like you to uh, cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. So be aware of that. We're looking at the tragedies of history. So uh, I should think there's going to be some dark stuff as well as some light stuff, considering, you know, history and everything. Uh, so <laughs> that's what's going to happen tonight. Uh, what we are is we're a, a live show, as you can see. We're also a podcast, so we record all of this so that uh, people who aren't here can hear it. Welcome to Act Two of Stand Up Tragedy. How are we all doing? We all right? Good. Well, there's been lots of tragedies for computers, and there's been lots of tragedies for sound, and there's been lots of tragedies for PowerPoint presentations. None of that has been any concern of yours, but that's why we've all been rushing around like blue-ass flies absolutely frustrated with technology. Technology is a bit tragic, and uh, I guess it's developed through history, so it's on on point for the night. Uh, But there we go. So that's to explain why we're running a little bit late going into this second act. I should say, don't forget to share your your tragic history with us. Uh, In the next break, make sure you write down some uh, tragic histories in our book. Um, I'm going to do a plug for my other thing that I do called Getting Better Acquainted, because... That's a kind of oral history project in lots of ways. It's lots of conversations with lots of different people who are very interesting uh, from all walks of life who I happen to know. Uh, So you should check that out. It's on iTunes and uh, SoundCloud and all that sort of thing, getting better acquainted. Uh, Also, at this point, I'm going to put a plug in for our next stand-up tragedy where hopefully for the first time in like months, we'll have no technical issues. Uh, Let's hope. Uh, Which is on the... Thursday the 12th of June at the Dog Star in Brixton and the theme for that night is Greek tragedy Um, and I should also say that Stand Up Tragedy are recruiting at the moment 
So if anybody in the audience is interested in getting involved with doing press with us, please uh, drop us a line. Find me. I've got a hat on. I'm easy to find. Um, so yeah, tell me if you're interested in doing that. And the other thing that we're interested in finding is someone to be our tour manager for when we go to the Edinburgh Festival in August. Now the good thing about doing that job is you get free accommodation for the whole festival as part of our team. So it's quite a kind of, act that's actually something I can give you, whereas press is kind of like, uh, hopefully we'll be able to pay eventually CV sort of thing. The, uh, the uh, tour manager thing actually has a tangible reality for you will get free accommodation during the festival. And one of the ways we hope to pay for that, that accommodation is we're doing a crowdfunding campaign, which we've launched today on Indiegogo. So have a look on in Indiegogo for our Stand Up Tragedy crowdfunding campaign. We'll be sharing it on all of our social media places, and we'll eventually have a bit and make it easy for me to tell you about it, but we don't at the moment, so you'll have to just Google it, right? But uh, it'd be great if you guys could have a look and consider uh, supporting live artists and help us get up to the festival uh, and do stuff. Because I've, I've basically gone freelance, right? So I'm going to be screwed if we don't make this money, right? Like last year we did a crowdfunding campaign and it was like I had a salary, I can sort of like dig into that, something will happen. But now I'm desperately screaming into the abyss. You can help me uh, to, to, to you can help make that process a little bit easier on me and on my my poor long suffering partner who who no fault of her own shares an income with me. Uh, so so you know help her out too. So yes, uh, that nonsense out of the way. I'm going to now introduce Liz for her second history lecture of the evening. Put your hands together for Liz Bailey. Thank you. Uh, technical difficulties repeating throughout the many times that we've done stand-up tragedy actually fits into what I'm about to talk about. So uh, you've all heard the, the saying, or at least a variation on it, uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, well, there's some variations on this. I really like the propeller head song. It's all just a little bit of history repeating. In the field, we call this recurrence theory, and uh, Nietzsche talked about it. He really liked it. But it's essentially the idea that things repeat. And you get into these cycles. Uh, you get economic cycles. You get cycles of war. Things that repeat. And it's not surprising because a lot of them are interrelated. And it's also not surprising that war kind of begets other wars. One of my favorite examples of this, if you can call it a favorite example, is the Crusades. And... Uh, I don't know if anyone would ever say the Crusades was their favorite anything, but for me it is. And uh, it, it ties in nicely. We're going to talk about the popes a little bit later. So the, it seems like every once in a while, for about, oh, 200 years, uh, one of the popes would say, you know what would be a good idea? Let's go back and take over the Holy Land. And everyone goes, yeah, that sounds like fun. There's like 10 of these, over t or 10 or 12, it depends on how you're counting and what you're counting. And I swear, if I was in the Holy Land, I would have been like, oh, it's you guys again. Thanks for dropping by and pillaging everything. Okay. <laughs> and, it, and it's not like there was any reason for them to be in the Holy Land as such. A lot of these papal decrees were that it was a mission from God that we should go and we should retake it. And when they actually took Jerusalem, they created this kingdom of Jerusalem for a short period of time. And uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem obviously didn't last very long because it was people coming in colonizing something that wasn't theirs. And so they kept going back to reestablish the kingdom of Jerusalem. So in this way, they sort of argued, well, it's actually ours, even though it's not really ours. Uh, 
So that's one of those times that things sort of repeat, but they're repeating because they're all interrelated. Now, another example that I like is the American Revolutionary War, or the War of Independence, American Independence, depending on who you're talking to. And uh, there's something that happens in 1812, which I have dubbed uh, the American Revolutionary War Part Two: The Revenge of Canada. <laughs> and it's because the Americans try to invade Canada. I don't recommend it. It ends up with the uh, White House getting burned down. Literally, and there is now a second White House because it was burned by the British. So what happens is basically the same things that happened in the first Revolutionary War. Uh, a government from afar tries to impose various structures on a group of people that feel like they're self-governing, so taxes and things like that. And okay, you've gone, had your own war, 1776, you're an independent state. How can that happen to you again? Well, it does. The British go and they decide we're going to fight the French. And they start imposing restrictions on trade for the Americas. So again, they're being ruled from afar, which doesn't really work for the Americans. So there's another war. As I say, American Revolutionary War, part two. But if you want a silly example of reoccurrence theory, which is based on a rhyme that my grandmother once taught me. She's Canadian. She's a British royalist. And uh, it's about Henry VIII's wives. And it goes... Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Now, if that's not repetition, I don't know what is. I mean, if you were a young, eligible woman, at that point, you had any money, you had any kind of looks, and Henry VIII is like, you know what, we should get married. Something's got to be wrong with you. The first one, okay, fine. The second one, totally understand, like you're making a power grab. The third one, I'd be skeptical. After that, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and Henry, on the other hand, three of his six wives, they're all called Catherine. So that's another type of reoccurrence theory. So history is repeating, and let's find out what everyone else is going to be talking about next. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to have our first musical act of the night. So uh, we, the performer is Joe Murphy. He, you can find him at www.sergeantbuzzbuzz.com or at BuzzBuzz on Twitter. He's already setting up, which is what I like music acts to be doing because that, that, that makes, just makes it so much more sleek. Because I'm all about sleek, as you'll have seen from my hosting style. Sleek and amazingly... Uh, uh, I can't even think of a word, that's how sleek I am. Right, so put your hands together for Joe Murphy! Uh, do you mean I'm sleek or slick? And, and is there a difference? <laughs> well, you're, you're very sleek, Dave. Um, what Liz was saying earlier reminded me that one of my favourite lines in pop culture is the genius couplet... The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself, which of course is ABBA. And um, I wish I'd written that line, those two lines. Um, I've been writing a history of the Catholic Church, and um, this particular song is set in the 1300s or the 14th century, if you're good with figures. And um, it, it's about the four, it was about the 70 years when the papacy moved from Rome to Avignon in the south of France. And uh, as we all know, after 70 years, they moved back to Rome again. But this is what happened in those 70 years. And it's called Sur le Pontif d'Avignon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Clement the fifth had enough of Rome, needed privacy, needed a new home. Moved the papal court to Avignon in Provence. A puppet to his neighbour, Philippe the Fair of France. Philippe charged the Knights Templar with unusual vices. Clement sanctioned torture with unusual devices. They were condemned through tortured confessions. Clement sequestered all Templar possessions. He spent three grand a year on food and wine. An enormous sum for those times. Devised new ways of revenue, fees and bribes aplenty. Appointed six cardinals from his family. Out of four and twenty, sur le pont, sur le pontif d'Avignon. Sur le pont, sur le pontif d'Avignon. Jacques de Aise from Cahors became John 22. Perfect for the job, a sickly man of 72. He raked in streams of money for forgiving any crime. Murder, theft, incest, rape, a devil's pantomime. All belief that Christ was poor, he claimed to be untrue. Franciscans became heretics and joined the bonfire queue. For living lives of poverty, a hundred were burnt. By John the 22nd, the richest man on earth. John made his son a cardinal, made the annual sex tax compulsory for all. Whether bishops had a concubine at all, sur le pont, sur le pontif d'Avignon, sur le pont, sur le pontif d'Avignon. The Roman Emperor Ludwig made an anti-pope in Rome. Nick V left wife and kids to sit upon the throne. He put on trial a straw doll of the Pope in Avignon. Years later he was captured and imprisoned by John. John went back to feasting at the marriage of his niece. Four thousand loaves of bread, three hundred weights of cheese. For imprisoning their ex-leader, a pope's man, John waged eighteen years of war on the people of Milan. John preached that no one had yet been to hell. Only at the end of time will the damned hear that bell. He retracted this heresy on his deathbed. The pure go straight to heaven, the lost straight to hell. The lost straight to hell. Sur le pont, sur le pontif d'Avignon. Sur le pont, sur le pontif d'Avignon. In the Cathar heresy, the future Benedict XII had been an inquisitor. The poet laureate Petrarch was offered a cardinal's hat if the Pope could have his sister. Petrarch refused, so Benedict approached another brother, and the deal was done. 
shark said Avignon was the sewer of the world The hall of dung The sick started taxing prostitutes There were so many in Avignon He was rolling in loot Everyone was rich The church built a brothel Then Clement bought the whole town For 80,000 florins Surrounded himself with women In the papal tradition Built a new palace with rooms For the Inquisition Bodies were dropped to the south a torture from above while Clement lay upstairs in the arms of love when criticised for his loose ways Clement would say the strongest popes in history all behave this way in 1348 the black death breathed into town taking half the population down 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 Sur le pont, sur le pont, sur d'Avignon. When Clement died, lightning struck St. Peter's in Rome. Crowds came out rejoicing from churches and homes. He's dead, he's dead, he's dead, the people cried and danced. Three days later, confirmation arrived from France. Fifty priests had to pray and ring their bells for nine whole days to save Clement from hell. Gregory the Eleventh left his Avignon home, finally brought the papacy back to Rome. Waged a war against Florence and the anti-papal league With mercenaries from England under Robert of Geneva When they reached Fienza after burning the land The civilian population was massacred Under Robert's hand Sur le pont, sur le pont, Avignon Sur le Pontif d'Avignon Encore Sur le pont Sur le pontif d'Avignon Sur le pont Sur le pontif d'Avignon Thank you Former. You can find her at www.jambymcgraffcomedy.co.uk. Uh, her name is Jambi McGrath, surprisingly enough. It's, 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 it's funny how all of the, uh, the, the stuff that, that, that I would direct people to people is their actual name. So it's a bit stupid the way around I'm doing this, but never mind. Uh, this is the way it goes uh, when I write these scripts and then find myself reading them in front of you and they don't really work. Never mind. So that's, that's tragic. That's history. Uh, but put your hands together for Jambi McGraw! Hello. Hi. 
how do we feel about politicians? We like politicians? Yeah. Nah, uh, <laughs> that's good. Because, you know, politicians say they do things in our, on, in our name. You know, like spend our taxes on second homes. But, but uh, on the 18th of January of this year, I was busy chilling out with my friends, doing our thing. And then my father had to ruin it for me by dying. So I flew to Kenya, and that's where I'm from. Uh, to find healing and someone had to say something for me that had to go and read it for me because politicians say things like collateral damage and you never really know what that means. I discovered that collateral damage is the baby that's found suckling, suckling on his dead mother whilst his five-year-old sister sits by watching too dumbfounded to speak. Incredibly, this little girl gets up, carries her baby brother and they stagger into nothingness. But to get to that story, we had to go far in history. So consider this. The year is 1885. A few aristocratic men gather around the table discussing the burning issues of the day. Not European women's voting rights or the prevalence of gout amongst the upper classes. But something much more fundamental. The modernization of Africa. <laughs> they shouldn't have bothered. <laughs> no, really, they shouldn't have. And when was the last time you put aristocratic middle-aged men in the same category as change and modern and forward-thinking. <laughs> so nonetheless, sat round the table were Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, having a siesta, uh, and Belgium facing the other way. And uh, on the wall, they have a big map of Africa. And with a pen, they literally drew borders, determining the future of Africans for centuries to come. What's weird now, Africans are more likely to have a map of Europe determining on which borders to cross. <laughs> so, at the time it didn't really matter because we were just jungle savages. So uh, it was that France took the western part of Africa, Germany took the three countries when measured equals to an isosceles triangle, Britain took all the countries in the center and Belgium took the place right in the middle. And at the time when Belgium took the Congo, it was under the kingship of King Leopold II. A nutcase who managed to kill half of the population in seven years. Now that's careless. <laughs> Italy took the whole of Africa, presumably to blow for their bonga bonga parties. <laughs> And when Spain woke up from their siesta, that was all that was left. <laughs> and no one, no one wanted Ethiopia. <laughs> I can't decide what's worse. <laughs> and so it was that Kenya was declared a British protectorate in 1895 by Queen Victoria. And soon after, the work began to build the East African Railway from the Indian Ocean port of Mombasa all the way to the source of the Nile. They didn't consult us on our railway building expertise. They outsourced to India. <laughs> Only at the time the Indians came to you, 30,000 of them. Now, had they consulted us on our local knowledge, we could have told them where the man-eating beasts were. <laughs> and I'm not talking about Katie Price. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the man-eating lions of Savo. 
There were two menless male lions that developed a, a taste for blood and always went for the vulnerable, beat like Cameron and Osborne. <laughs> but uh, they also sent a guy called Sir Charles Elliot to assess the territory and the people. His assessment of the territory was that the central province of Kenya, with its bright red soils and heavy rainfall, was perfect for the British habitation. His assessment of the people was that they were black. <laughs> Correction, I would say varying shades of brown. <laughs> His other assessment of uh, the Africans was that the Africans were lacking in every way. Until one of the men dropped his trousers, the whole place went dark. And so, uh, uh, he renamed the central province of Kenya the White Highlands. So now, that was destined to be for white people. But there was one tiny little problem. There was no white people living in the White Highlands. So they placed adverts in London, advertising cheap land and cheap labor. The respondents, old Etonians. <laughs> and you know what fun those boys can be? <laughs> And there was others too, from Harrow and other public school Oxbridge educated aristocrats dipped in blue blood and syphilis. <laughs> they also placed adverts in South Africa. The respondents, just the racists. <laughs> and off to the new frontier. So now, there was white people for the white highlands. But one tiny little problem. The Kikuyu farmers that lived there. And if you know anything about the Kikuyu, they were industrious people. And they are renowned for their love of money. It is said that if you want to spot a Kikuyu, drop a coin, they all turn around. <laughs> but getting rid of them was easy. They would turn up, touch the village, the panicked villagers would be hoarded into a lorry, and boom, expelled into some desolate lands, surrounded by barbed wire called the native reserves. But life was beautiful for the settlers who settled in rather nicely with wife swapping, <laughs> swinging, orgies. They even created their own Moulin Rouge. They drank champagne and pink gin for breakfast. They played cards all day. They danced all night, woke up in the morning with a dick in one's mouth. And that was just their horses. They had drugs dropped from airplanes. They turned the central province of Kenya into one huge hedonistic haven of sex, drugs, and oppressor native. <laughs> Even Satan in hell was thinking, Jesus! <laughs> Wrong team. So, the native reserves were overcrowded, and you can imagine the type of decision you would make if you were snorting coke and shagging. The decision they made for the natives was rather damning because all the Kikuyus, all of them had to wear a metal frame, a, a, an ID on a metal frame around their necks. They had no permission to leave their enclosures. They had to carry an employment record. They had to pay not one but two types of taxes, half tax and poll tax, equivalent to two months wages, but no employment. They were fined if they didn't pay. And the decision was made to clear all food crops from the central province of Kenya to make way for important crops like tobacco and tea and coffee. So the Kikuyus became impoverished. They became malnourished and now relied on handouts from the Red Cross. And those 
are the images that have come to define Africa. But what could go wrong? Of course, the Kikuyus were not very happy. So they got a few elders to go to the British and tell them, please can you give us a little bit more of our land and some freedom? They were dismissed as jungle buffoonery. So they had no choice but start an armed rebellion. They formed a group called the Mau Mau. The Mau Mau had no money, so they used tactics like killing those who were loyal to the British government. They started attacking the settlers. The settlers became hysterical. They marched to the governor of Kenya and insisted that something be done to the Kikuyus who were ruining their orgy. <laughs> the governor reacted by declaring Kenya a state of emergency. 20,000 troops were brought in from Lancashire Fusiliers, from the King's African Rifles, the African branch of the British military. Amongst them, their brightest star, a young man by the name of Idi Amin Dada. <gasps> you ought to know him, he was the last king of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so, under the state of emergency, uh, all human rights were suspended. There was to be collective punishment. They brought in hanging in 1952. They brought in hanging. And all the Maumaus were to be arrested. But there was one problem. No one knew who the Maumau were. Because to join the Maumau, one had to take an oath of allegiance. And because of Kikuyu superstition, that was unbreakable, making it virtually impossible to distinguish between those who had taken the oath and those who hadn't. And so the decision was made to arrest the whole entire tribe. 1.5 million of them were arrested. So my mother was eight years old, fast asleep in the sack that she used to sleep in, that's all they had, next to her mother and her two older sisters. They were woken up at night by shouting and barking on the dog's announcement on the tannoy. My grandmother grabbed her children, ran outside. The houses were on fire. There was officers with unsessions. They were shining lights into their faces. The men were hoarded into lorries and they were taken to hardcore detention camps. The women and children were taken into diff different lorries to be taken to special villages. So by the morning, my grandmother and her children found themselves in a place like that, a field surrounded by barbed wire and a watchtower. Upon arrival, they had to walk in front of a hooded person. This person would nod if they identified you as the Mau Mau. They put a black stick on you, you were taken away. Luckily for my grandmother, she was identified as Grey. Grey meant they didn't know whether she was or she wasn't the Mau Mau. So they could stay in this field. But they had nowhere to stay. There was no accommodation, there was no nothing. The women were scotted to the forest to cut trees to come and build their homes. But up until then, they had to sleep in their elements. And it didn't stop raining just because a woman had given birth. It didn't stop raining just because a woman had pneumonia. It didn't stop raining just because cry babies cried all night because of cold and hunger. It didn't stop raining, but it gave the women an incentive because that's what we would do. They began building homes for their children. And my grandmother was building her house frantically because she had to provide a home for her kids. And the woman next to her had to build a home to provide somewhere for her kids. And the woman next to them because we had raised up to the challenge. And then they thought, if we work together as a team, we could build one, and that the children could be warm for the night, and that's what they did. When the work was finished, it looked like that. The houses had to be in neat straight rows with the doors facing the watchtower. Because the watchtower had to have a perfect view of the women, 
The women had to have a perfect view of the asshole. Every morning they would be woken up, six o'clock on the dot, to go and start digging trenches all day, without food or water. The women were beaten. Those that did not cooperate, by not cooperate, I mean who walked too slowly because they'd been beaten, because their baby had died in the night of malnutrition and cold. They were taken to special cells, and this is where Idi Amin and his superiors came in. These people redefined rape. They raped these women using broken bottles and glass and hot boiled eggs. They crushed chilies and inserted them into their vaginas, poisoning from them, uh, them from inside. And after all that, they were paraded to be given lessons on British values. This story could go on, but I've only got 10 minutes. But there was despair everywhere. Everyone despaired because the men, they, whatever happened to the men was just horrid. There was just despair, and they thought their only way was to write to people in Britain because that's where their hopes lay. They wrote masses and masses and masses of letters. The women wrote letters to the queen because the queen was a mother, and she knew what a mother would feel like. But the queen had gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers said the letters had to be stopped because they were embarrassing. So anyway, all hope was gone for my tribe, and it seemed like there was nothing they could do. These were weak people, they were the losers of the world. But someone hurt them. Someone hurt their cries, and her name was Barbara Castle. She was the Labour MP. She took a flight, she went to Kenya, she saw with her own eyes 804 camps. She saw four-year-old boys shackled to their beds and their fathers had long gone. She saw all of that. She went to the house as a common, she asked questions. And apparently they were not acting on your behalf. Because if they had been acting on your behalf, they would not have been embarrassed. And just like that, one person's bravery saved us. And I'm here alive today because of Barbara Castle, a woman that I will never meet. I thank you very much. Uh, my story is a 45-minute story. I'm doing it for Edinburgh. Uh, I thank you for your time. Good night. Yeah, she is, Jambi is also uh, funding her Edinburgh trip. Uh, so if you want to support her, go on to her website. As I said, www.jambimcgraffcomedy.co.uk uh, and there's an N before Jambi. Uh, so it's spelled N-J-A-M-B-I. So that's how you find it. You should definitely go uh, and support her Edinburgh show, which is called Bongo Licious, and she needs... Uh, your help to get it there and you've seen a little bit of it it's going to be even better than that because it's going to be developed and longer so help support her and what she's doing uh, please uh, so <laughs> our next performer uh, performance is, is going to be from something very different so prepare to reset uh, yourselves for something different uh, so you can find them at www.drunkenchorus.co.uk so guess what they're called they're called Drunken Chorus <laughs> Where are they? Yes. Come in. I could 
I could walk on, <laughs> stand behind this microphone, look out at the audience, and then just walk off. <laughs> or I could walk on, uh, look each one of you in the eye, from one side of the audience, to the other, sigh, and then just walk off. Or I could walk on, onto the stage, stand here, look out at the audience, sigh, say, never mind. And then just walk off. Or I could tell you, um, yeah, I could, I could tell you about the bit that got me thrown out of the improv group here. Um, I could tell you how I, I haven't, I haven't done it since. Um, well, I've tried, it, I've tried it a few times, but it's never really worked. Um, and I could tell you that I'd like to try it for you tonight. Uh, I could tell you that it's called, well, uh, it used to be called eating dinner. Uh, but recently I changed it to eating ice cream. Uh, so I could, I could sit here uh, on this chair at this table um, and I could call over the waitress. So let's, we, could, we could say that you're the waitress. I could call you over and I could say something like, uh, uh, what have you got? What's, go what's good? And you could say, uh, <laughs> are, are you serious? And I could say, yeah, yeah, you know, so what's on the menu? What, what would you recommend? And then you could list some uh, kind of savoury dishes, um, meatloaf, um, I don't know, uh, hamburger, steak, you know, that kind of thing. And I could say, oh, actually, have you, um, have you got any desserts on the menu? And you could say, uh, yeah, sure, we've got um, <sighs> baked Alaska. We've got um, pecan pie, pumpkin pie, um, ice cream. And I could say, oh, yeah, great. Um, can I get uh, some chocolate ice cream, but can I get it in one of those, uh, in like a soup bowl, so that I can stir it round a bit before I eat it? And you could say, uh, yeah, all right. And then you could go off to the kitchen at the back. And I could just sit here and wait. And then eventually you could come back with the ice cream in a, in a soup bowl like I asked for, pop it down on the table, um, and I could, 
I could eat the ice cream, uh, again in, in silence, uh, and then just walk off. Or I could be bombarded with insults and, and kind of heckles um, uh, about my tax avoidance techniques, my tax avoidance schemes, and I'd have to cut the performance short and you know, leave via the, the backfire exit. Or I could tell you that I wished that I was a dead comedian so that this might be a little bit easier. Or I could walk onto the stage, stand here behind this microphone, and say something like, uh, <laughs> that wasn't really a very good start. Um, maybe I should go off and then come back on again. And then um, that guy right at the back over there, he could stand up and shout, yeah, why don't you fucking stay off? Or uh, right in the middle of all this action, Whilst it's kicking off, I could just suddenly start counting. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. You know, really deliberately. With a lot of concentration, really kind of enunciating every word. As if they've kind of uh, gotten away from me and I'm trying to collect up all the numbers. Six. Seven. Eight, nine, ten, and uh, by the time I get to fifteen, the audience, that's you guys, could uh, begin to laugh. And by the time I get all the way up to a hundred, the audience, that's, that's you guys, could be rolling around on the floor laughing, kind of holding your stomachs from, you know, because you're laughing so hard. Or I could have a, a heart attack and the curtain could fall. Or I, I could throw up just down here, like on the waitress's feet, um, and tweet a photograph of myself later on so that from a hospital bed uh, so that you all know that I'm all right. Or I could just forget all of my lines and just walk off. Or I could I could ask for four volunteers. I could ask for four volunteers to, to raise their hands and join me up here on stage. I could tell you that I'm serious, that this really is part of the performance, that I, <laughs> that I really need four volunteers to raise their hands and join me. I could tell you that, um, uh, yes, I could select you over there. <laughs> I could tell you that I really am very serious and that the performance, is that another one over there, yes? That the performance probably won't carry on until we have all four. I could tell you that I'm very willing to be here all night. Two more. I could tell you that we need two more volunteers. I could tell you that we're uh, 
Now I could tell you that we really do need four. <laughs> I could tell you that I'm very persistent. I could tell you that I've got a lot of stamina and that I'm absolutely willing to wait here until we have four volunteers. I could select you, sir. I could tell you that we need one more, the perfect final member. I could remind you once more that uh, <laughs> things really won't progress from this moment <laughs> until we have a fourth volunteer. I could tell you how brave <laughs> these three lovely people have been and how embarrassing it is for them. How embarrassing it is for them that you won't come and join them. Is that yes? And I could ask you to form an orderly line, which you've already kind of done. That's fantastic. Um, I could tell you that you're going to be the ducks. I could tell you that you're going to be the turkeys. Uh, that you're going to be the pigs. And I could tell you that you're going to be the cows. Um, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll be the chicks. So I could, I could signal to the orchestra at the back of the auditorium, and they could begin to play. And then with great confidence, charm, and charisma, we could begin to sing.
I could tell you how in 1990 I moved to LA with my family uh, to pursue a, a kind of dream of fame and fortune, to pursue a career in comedy. Uh, and I could tell you that after a couple of weeks of being there, uh, I received two telephone calls. Uh, the first one was really good news. Um, it was an offer of some work in television one of those um, Saturday night uh, TV comedy programs. Uh, so I was really excited about that, and I, I, it felt really good that I'd made that um, I'd made that decision to go out there and to take that risk, and it was it felt like it was paying off. Um, and I could tell you that the second phone call was bad news, and that. I could tell you that uh, when cancer comes back for a second time, it comes back uh, more aggressive. Um, more uh, difficult to beat. And I could carry on on that subject for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes while the audience just sit there in silence. Or, uh, or I could take you all out for milk and cookies after the performance. You know, my, my treat. Or I could uh, just halfway through the performance just, just start crying. Or I could uh, I could walk onto the stage, uh, but having forgotten to put on any trousers. Or I could uh, right right in the middle of the performance just just forget all my lines, or uh, lose all of my confidence for no reason and just walk off. Or I could, um, 
I could put on a a cape, or like a like a cloak, um, like a kind of red and gold patterned cloak, helped by a, a glamorous assistant. Uh, with the intention that <clears throat> once it was on, the act would be to uh, pull out various objects from inside this cloak that would become more and more uh, larger and more and more ridiculous as the act goes on. But secretly, there'd be someone behind the red velvet curtain um, passing me the objects. And just as I'm about to start the act, I'd, I could kind of um, I could kind of stumble about a bit, and the glamorous assistant could smile, and the audience, that's you guys, could laugh a little bit. But then I could I could stumble a little bit more, and eventually kind of fall backwards and land on my backside, just sitting there. And the glamorous assistant would be giggling, and the audience would be laughing quite a lot at this point. And then I kind of rock around a bit and make these kind of weird grunting noises before eventually just falling backwards into the red velvet curtain. And the glamorous assistant could look off, a bit concerned, not really knowing what to do. <laughs> and the audience could laugh. But then, <laughs> then after a while, once my kind of my body becomes still and silent, that laughter could turn to this kind of uh, awkward mumble of laughter, uh, and someone off stage could signal to the orchestra at the back of the auditorium, and they could begin to play. And amongst the audience, there could be this weird kind of ripple of. Awkward applause. Not where people aren't really sure what to do. <laughs> and the screen could turn black. And Um, never mind. So that's kind of a what drunken chorus are they? Kind of, they're a theatre company that kind of do stuff in, well, they do stuff with the history of stand-up, so there was a lot of the history of stand-up, I think, in that. I think I spotted a bit of Andy Kaufman and some other, other reference. I think it was there Jimmy Carr? Yeah. yeah, there was a Jimmy Carr reference, Tommy Cooper, there you go. So uh, that, that's, what, that's what was going on there, and that's, and that's, and that's tragic history, absolutely. Um, and uh, <laughs> I love it when I don't know what's going to happen next, and I definitely didn't know that was going to happen, so that's great.
So our next performer uh, is uh, the last performer of, of this act, and then we'll have a break, and maybe, I don't know, one of the tragedies of this room is apparently they don't have air conditioning, so uh, it might be a good idea to just go out in the street and <sighs> breathe, and then come back up for the last act. Uh, but our last performer now is, well, he, uh, he's, he's involved with the local, in fact, you run, you run it? Yeah, you run locofilmfestival.com. He also is involved with Arts Emergency, who uh, we really support here, and there's some information about them at the back, so check out about Arts Emergency. I would do a big, long spiel, but we're already running over time, but they're really worth checking out. Um, his name is Jonathan Wakeham, which is how you can find him on Twitter. So, Jonathan Wakeham, everybody! And I should apologise to him as well. We have not got the PowerPoint that we promised him, so be, uh, be kind to him for that. Hello. Hello. Uh, good evening, everybody. I would like to talk about Thomas Midgley, uh, a man called Thomas Midgley who was responsible for more disease, disaster, and death than any man who ever lived. So it's going to be fun. Thomas Midgley was born in 1889, the same year as Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler. He was the only baby born that year without a moustache. His father was an inventor. Uh, but a very bad inventor. They had no money. Thomas Midgley grew up poor. And at a very young age, he decided that he wanted to be rich. Uh, by the way, all of this is true. And with admirably lateral thinking, he got his first job at the age of 19 at the National Cash Register Company. And he then went to work at General Motors as a chemist. Now, General Motors had a problem. And that problem was called engine knock. And it was about the combustion in the engines was making a, a kind of explosion noise. It didn't damage the engine, but it put people off buying cars. So Thomas Midgley got to work, and he soon discovered that there was a very well-known substance that you could add to gasoline. And if you added the substance to gasoline, the engine would make no noise at all. Unfortunately, the very well-known substance was lead, and what it was very well known for was being poisonous. But it did make engines really, really quiet. And so in 1922, two things happened. The League of Nations banned the use of lead in household paint. And America was the only country that didn't sign up to that ban. And General Motors employed the DuPont Chemical Company to make enormous amounts of leaded petrol. And they called their new company the Ethyl Corporation because it didn't want people to know what was in it. If they had wanted people to know what was in it, they wouldn't have called it the Ethyl Corporation. They'd have called it chock full of lead. And within just a few years, more than 90% of the petrol in America was made with lead. Now, the United States Surgeon General wrote to General Motors, and he said, since lead poisoning is of the cumulative type, it seems pertinent to inquire whether there might not be a decided health hazard associated, associated with the extensive use of lead tetraethyl in engines. Thomas Midgley wrote back to the Surgeon General, and this is what he said. It has been given very serious consideration. No actual experimental data has been taken, but the average street will probably be so free from lead that it will be impossible to detect. Let's just go back a bit. No actual experimental data has been taken, but the average street will probably be so free from lead that it will be impossible to detect. In fact, he went so far as to give a press conference. There's a picture of this. Thomas Midgley gave a press conference where he washed his hands in ethyl fluid and inhaled the vapour, and the statement that he gave to the press was... I'm not taking any chances whatsoever. Now, the American Chemical Society was so delighted and impressed by Thomas Midgley's work that they awarded him a medal and they invited him to make a speech. 
Sadly, he had to decline his speech three times because he was suffering from lead poisoning, <laughs> having washed his hands in ethyl fluid and inhaled the vapour. But Midgley wasn't the only one to suffer. At DuPont's Deepwater plant in New Jersey, over 300 workers got sick and many of them died. But instead of saying, my God, this is awful, we should do something, DuPont released a statement. Their statement blamed their workers. This is what DuPont said. Well, we have a great deal of trouble in tr inducing the men to be cautious. We have to protect them against themselves. And at another ethyl corporation plant, six workers died from violent insanity and 33 others suffered incurable brain damage. This time, DuPont told the press, these men probably went insane because they worked too hard. So how did this happen? How did DuPont and GM get away with it? How is it that lead petrol wasn't banned until the 1980s? Well, this is where we meet the other hero of our story, and he was a man called Robert Kehoe. Robert Kehoe was a toxicologist. He worked for GM, and he was the founder of the Kehoe Doctrine. And the Kehoe Doctrine says, there is always uncertainty to be found in a world of imperfect information. And what that means in practice is that whenever an industry invents a dangerous product, the burden of proof falls on the state to prove that it's dangerous, not the inventor to prove that it's safe. It's the same defense we've seen from the tobacco industry, the asbestos industry, and the refrigeration industry, as we will see. Because Thomas Midgley wasn't finished. So it's now the 1920s, and in the 1920s, all across America, people were being killed by fridges. Now, this is not because fridges were falling on top of them. It's not because they were climbing into fridges. It's because the gases used to keep fridges cold were toxic. So people brought fridges into their homes. The fridges would then leak and the people would then die. And in 1929, 15 people in Chicago were killed by fridges made by the same refrigerator company. Brilliantly, this company was called the Peerless Refrigerator Company. So clearly a new gas was needed, one that was stable, safe and cheap to produce. So they called on Thomas Midgley. And Midgley came up with a new gas, and this gas he called Freon. And in 1930, he gave another demonstration to the press. He inhaled a lungful of Freon, and then he blew out a lit candle with it to show that it was non-toxic and non-flammable. And that same year, here in London, a young mathematician called Sidney Chapman was developing a theory. His theory was that the Earth was, was protected from dangerous ultraviolet radiation by a tiny percentage of the atmosphere. And that tiny percentage of the atmosphere was made up as a very rare allotrope of oxygen. And that allotrope was called ozone. If you take all of the ozone in all of the atmosphere and you squish it, what you end up with is a layer that's about as thick as the sole of your shoe. Thomas Bridges, Freon, uh, Thomas Bridges Freon was enormously successful. The CFCs were fantastic. They put them into aerosols, into fridges, into thousands of other products, and they floated up into the atmosphere and they attacked the ozone molecules, literally stealing the oxygen from them. And how did this happen? How was Freon ever declared to be safe? Well, it was declared safe by an expert, and that expert was Robert Kehoe. So between them, Thomas Midgley and Robert Kehoe were responsible for literally millions of deaths. 75 million American children alone suffered from toxic levels of lead poisoning. Which makes me wonder, what's the moral of the story? Well, if you're a pessimist, I think it's about the power of business. It's about the way in which large corporations consistently conceal the dangers of the products that they make. 
If you're an optimist, it's about the resilience of nature. So since lead was banned in petrol, the blood lead level of Americans has declined by 75%. The Montreal Treaty that phased out CFCs has prevented millions of deaths from skin cancer and has helped to slow down climate change. And the ozone hole over Antarctica will be closed by 2050, 100 years after Thomas Midgley's death. What a celebration. But I think the moral of the story is this. We all make mistakes. We all fuck up from time to time. If we risk nothing, we achieve nothing. Midgley's crime is not that he failed, but that he tried so hard to hide it, just as Enron did and Lehman Brothers and the British and American governments in Iraq and Afghanistan. See, I think we should embrace our failures. We should be proud of our fuck-ups. We should share them. We should learn from them. And we should share what we learn. Samuel Beckett put it better than me. He said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. I think we should all do that. We should try again, fail again, and fail better. And if we do that together, we share what we learn. Maybe, just maybe, we can still save the world. Thank you very much. Sleep tight. There we go. So Thomas Bidgley. I, see, I saw that with the PowerPoint the, the first time and it, it blew me away and I had to have it on at Stand Up Tragedy and I'm really pleased to say it worked really well without the PowerPoint so that's, that's great and that's a testament to your, to your excellent delivery. Unlike me, I'm not very good at delivering things but what I am going to deliver to you now is a break. So we're going to have a break, 15 minutes, then we'll be back. Uh, wow, oh, that was, that was ex excellently done. Uh, the sound engineer managed to get a, a cigarette in the end despite... Uh, the terrible traumas that have gone on with him. So, round of applause for Harv. I think he deserves it tonight, actually. He's had a hard fucking time. So enjoy your break. Let's have some more music and have some more tragedy later. Share and spread the tragedy. You can find us on Twitter at StandUpForTragedy. You can find us and friend us on Facebook where we're StandUpTragedy. The podcasts are available through iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud. Time to go. Find them, share them, listen to them. We've got a whole back catalogue of shows up there for free. It's the end of the show. Free audio to listen to in whatever way is most convenient to a part of the tragedy. Help support the tragedy by contributing to our Indiegogo campaign, which again you can find at bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe. It's time to go. Our next show is on the 12th of June at the Dogstar in Brixton. It's Greek tragedy. It's going to have Andy Zaltzman and a hell of a lot of other Brilliant performance, bringing you some classic tragedy. And for now, the tragedy is
try.